0: mouthpiece for a portion of this congregation that has been through the valley lately, And by way of thanks to the portion of this congregation that has sustained that portion with your prayers and carried us through some very deep and difficult days, and uh, particularly on behalf of the Burkettes, I thank you, thank you for your prayers that have brought us through, in the Lord's kind province, a very deep and dark valley of, of uh, pain and affliction. He is good, but he, part of his marvelous goodness is putting us in this family of uh, Christians. <coughs> marvelous it is to watch as, as you sustain and buoy one another up with prayer, the Lord's instrument. Well, Great to be back with you. Luke chapter 15, please. To Luke 15, I invite your attention with me this morning, where I intend to make good on the uh, declared intent a few weeks ago to return uh, the next week. You might remember that it was carefully couched in the cow we the Lord willing. Uh, to return, I say, to the matter of repentance You remember that we had come to the point in Matthew where Jesus was rebuking the three cities, sometimes called the Evangelical Triangle, where it is estimated that he spent nearly 80% of his time of ministry. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! It will be more bearable on the judgment for Tyre and for Sidon than for you. And what of you, Chorazin? Uh, or rather Capernaum. It will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Why? What was the problem? Well, Simply this. They did not and would not repent. Had Jesus done his wonders in those proverbially wicked cities, Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, They, he said, would have repented in dust and ashes. But Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, though direct witnesses of Jesus' words and works, refused to repent. Lack of repentance. That was the thing that sent those cities, that sent the people of those cities to hell. That is devastating news. And it sends shivers up our spines, because we do not want ever to hear those words spoken by Jesus about ourselves. So we've paused to remind ourselves last time about the essential nature of repentance to salvation. It was, we were reminded, the first part of the message of the prophets and of John and of Jesus and of the apostles. Repent. The very first word Recorded of Jesus' ministry of his preaching is you remember. Repent. It's essential. This we established last time. It is essential. But today we ask then, what is if if repentance is essential? What is its, its its essence? You know, what is the essence of essential repentance? What are we after? What does it look like? Well, I could tell you, and I intend to do that, but uh, Jesus takes it even a step—a wonderful step further than telling us by showing us. And one of the most memorable, one of the most vivid, and uh, wonderful, and remarkable of parables. It's sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son. Today we're calling it the uh, the repentant the parable of the repentant son. And if you will listen carefully, I think you will hear who it is in the story who really is the prodigal, the true prodigal, who is lavishly, extravagantly free with his resources. Folk in the cry room, can you hear me? Good. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you and praise you for your goodness to us at every turn. And here is another, what adjective to use to describe the blessing that that it is to hear your voice, to hear the voice of your Son, just as surely as as the um, wavelengths of the uh, sound that emanated from Jesus' mouth that day fell upon the ears of the disciples, so the sound of your voice now resonates upon our hearts because your Holy Spirit takes this word and causes it to live. Do this, we pray, Father. Send thy Spirit that we may receive marvelous and wonderful things from your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 15 beginning at verse 11, and Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property, in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and he is found And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years, I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this Son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You kill the fattened cap for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting for me to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What is repentance? What's the essence of Repentance. Well, it is, as we said last time, fundamentally, it is turning from sin, from our sin, to God. Actually, I gave you five definitions of repentance a few weeks ago, and if you wish to dive very deeply into the matter, I will be glad to loan you uh, my copy of Thomas Watson's fine book, The Doctrine of Repentance, with whose Every page I became intimately acquainted, well, flat on my back a couple of weeks ago. If so, if you will read that little volume, and I heartily recommend it to you, you will find, as I did, having some uh, very dark corners of your heart exposed an opportunity to repent in ways that maybe you didn't even know you needed to repent. But to find when you do, well, the gracious response of God that we're going to hear about this morning. What is repentance? One very fine definition comes from our own Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is repentance unto life is the question, and the answer comes repentance unto life is a saving grace. Whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full purpose of and endeavor after I know that you could finish it. New obedience. That's a fine definition. Thoroughly biblical, well worth much study, and even committing to memory. It's been good for, for us to hear some of you children recite that from memory. But there is another definition, another description of repentance that I offered you last time from the late Dr. J.I. Packer that goes like this. It's a little simpler. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin. To give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. Now the reason I gravitate toward Packer's description of repentance is that it has locomotion. It has movement to it. It has progression built right into it. Repentance is not a static thing. It's not a one and done Thing. In fact, it's something which we, with which we are never finished. <clears throat> you remember Martin Luther's 95 theses, hammered, nailed onto the castle church door at Wittenberg. Well, the very first of those theses goes this way. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. John Calvin also understood repentance the same way, to be a continuing journey. And he he criticized those who, quote, limit to a paltry few days a repentance that, for a Christian man, ought to extend throughout his life. Now listen for the progress, the progressive nature of repentance, now again in Packer's definition. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin To give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. The progressive nature of repentance is heard in the growing knowledge, right? In the growing knowledge of all three. The knowledge of our sin, the knowledge of ourselves, the knowledge of our God. As we make progress in the Christian life, we, we, we should be coming to know and to grasp more deeply all three our sin, ourselves, and our God. As I've been reflecting on all of this, and let me tell you, there is nothing like affliction and the rod of God to send you repenting. I say as I've been reflecting on these, I believe we see them all in the repentant son and Jesus' parable, and, and so find in him something of a model for ourselves. We want to be repentant Christians, don't we? I know you do. We want to be repentant people. We've all committed to this, in fact, to to this life of repentance, to following Jesus in every way that he has told us to follow him. And that following him requires of us and that must mean repentance. So first, dear flock, it means that we must turn from as much as we know of our sin. Now that seems a strange thing to say, doesn't it? Seems a strange thing to hear. To to turn from as much as we know of our sin. I mean, don't we know our sin? Surely, I mean, others are not aware of all of our sin. Of course they're not because we choose not to reveal it to them. We're skilled at hiding it from them. But surely, surely we know all of our own sin, don't we? How could we not know our own sin? But the fact is we don't. We don't know all of our sin. Sin is a great deep because our hearts are a great deep. The prophet Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And since sin resides, first of all, in our hearts, long before it manifests itself in our words and in our actions, the fact is we don't understand all of our sin, nor are we even aware of its full depth and darkness. It is a deep, deep, dark well whose bottom we cannot see. That's why the psalmist asks, you know, God, search this heart of mine, search my heart, See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David was wise enough to understand by the time he wrote that psalm to know that the depths and the corners and the corridors of his heart created such a labyrinth of lies and deception that only God could possibly know what's down in there. Expose it. And then lead him in the opposite direction. Our hearts lie to us, don't they? They lie to us all the time. Our hearts lie to us about our motives. Our hearts mislead us to do what is evil and even convince us all the while that what we're doing is actually righteous. That the lies are actually somehow loving. Or the deceptions are really ultimately to accomplish good things or the wrath and anger are actually going to bring about righteousness. The unrighteous anger, I mean. But most of all, our hearts hide sin and sinful motives in the dark, dark corners, hoping hoping never to have them exposed by and to the light. The young man in Jesus' parable, we could easily imagine, had convinced himself that demanding his share of the inheritance early was harmless enough. It was, after all, he says to his father there in verse 12. He says, it's simply the share I have coming to me. There is no indication here that the son consciously wished his father were dead. But that's essentially what he's saying, isn't it? I want you to treat me, and I want to treat you as if you were dead. See, the point at which we first violate the law of God, the point at which we most fundamentally violate the law of God, is not here in our hands or here with our lips, it's in our hearts. That's where we violate God's law, first and foremost, with the motive, with the heart. And this son had essentially murdered his father in his heart with his demand. This was not loving his father, it was hating him. And we've already learned from Jesus that hating our brother is murdering them in our hearts. Did he realize it at the time? I don't know. It's not really the point of the parable. Uh, But for the sake of argument, I think we may assume that he is young, probably in his teens, and not really fully aware of the significance of what he's demanding, of the pain that he is inflicting, of the offense that he is truly committing here. Now, after he rides his tiger, so to speak, once he runs this sin out to its limit, he comes to understand what he's done apparently for him it takes coming to the end of his money to through severe famine to the point of the big, being the slopper of pigs remember this is a jewish audience largely of this parable this preaching of jesus pigs were unclean that he has reached as one commentator put it he has reached hog bottom before he comes to grasp what he has done When he's at the point of actually envying the unclean pigs, their pods, probably inedible to humans anyway, he comes to himself. Jesus said he realizes, verse 18, that I've sinned against heaven and before my Father. So at this point, knowing his sin, he repents and heads for Father and from home. He turns from as much as he knows... Of his sin. His sin having been revealed to him, or maybe better said, impressed upon him now by these brutal circumstances. Now, it's worth noting as an aside here, and we could spend a long time analyzing it, but I think at the end we would agree that uh, his repentance here is far from perfect. In fact, it's kind of pathetic, but it's certainly based on on mixed motives, based at least partly, if not primarily, on the fact that he's hungry, he's miserable, and he desires to have what his servants, his father's servants, that is, have. But it is occurring to him anyway, it's starting to occur to him that at the root, the problem is his sin. There's an important lesson there for us. None of our repentance is perfect, nobody's repentance is perfect you have never repented perfectly it's not as if we're trying to therefore impress God with our repentance because we're in a heap of trouble if we try to do that we're not trying to earn God's favor and curry it by our repentance uh, to somehow earn our way back into his his arms we're not saved by repentance We're saved by grace. Turn from what you know of your sin to God. Even your repentance, imperfect as it must be, is a gift from God. A gift of His grace to turn to Him at all. Now, must every sin lead us all the way to the pig trough, broken and hungry in order for us to know it? No. Thankfully. This is where progress in the Christian life comes in. If we would repent from as much as we know of our sin, then we're going to want to know our sin. We're going to want to know and become acquainted with that sin in order to repent of it sooner rather than later. And while we must all be grateful that God does not reveal our sin to us all at once, can you imagine that? Can you imagine how crushing it would be if God showed you all your sin and its ugliness and its depths all at once? It would be crushing, wouldn't it? While we may be grateful that God does not reveal all our sin to us at once, we do want God to show us our sin and show it to us early so that we will turn from it early. One way he does it is through our our giving serious thought to our sin while it's still in thought form. Mature Christians deal with sin by taking it with full seriousness when it is discovered by the light of God's Word shining not only into our outward circumstances but even more and first of all, in our hearts. We don't always have to go all the way to the physical pigsty to turn from our sins if we will first go there mentally. Consider where sin would take you if it could. Sin begins in small ways. It's seemingly harmless desires, right? We even like to sometimes toy around with them. Begins in these what we think are seemingly harmless desires, but James puts it this way. He says, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a progression and it begins with desire. So when temptation first comes to your heart, those thoughts first cross, ask yourselves, Where would this lead if it could? Where would it go if I gave it unbridled liberty? Where would it lead? Picture in your mind the pigsty, whatever particular pigsty this would lead to. John Owen helpfully recommends that we, for example, ask envy what it aims at. Murder and destruction are its natural conclusion. They are. You think about where your envy goes. It ends in murder. It ends in destruction. Owen continues, Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. And every unbelieving thought would be atheism. Sin's expression is modest in the beginning. But once it has gained a foothold, it continues to take further ground and presses on to greater heights. See, picture, my brothers and sisters, think and picture in your mind what terror and undoing this seemingly little sinful desire has in store for you if it is not killed and killed early. As you grow as a Christian, you'll learn to do this. you learn to identify sin earlier and earlier and earlier in its earliest stages and to repent, to turn from it before desire conceives and gives birth and grows. You will repent of the sins that you identify in your heart while it's still only there in your heart. God, show us those sins that we may repent from as much as we know of our sin. And early. Second, you must repent by turning to give as much as you know of yourself to God. So, you'll have to ask, Who am I? Get to know yourself a little better. Who am I? If repentance is giving as much as I know of myself to God, you will repent better if you understand yourself better. So, come to understand yourself, dear Christians, a little better now. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. And as Paul writes to the Ephesians, you were dead, but God has made you alive in Christ Jesus. God is the one who has done this. He came to you. He gave you new life. And with that new life, He gave you new desires. He gave you new affections. He gave you new loves. Chiefly, a love for Him and a desire for Him and a trust in Him. He made you aware of your sin and gave you a holy dissatisfaction, yes, even disdain for that banal level of living at the back and call of your fallen nature and its desires and its appetites. He gave you a new purpose to live for Him. He gave you a new identity. You're a different person. You are in Christ. That is who you are. You are His Son's. That includes you two ladies, by the way. We've been through this before, but I'll remind you again, you ladies are also his sons. For a very important reason, you are co-heirs and equally in the divine estate with your brothers here. You're all sons. Brothers in Christ. This is who you are. Notice that the repentant son in Jesus' parable came back to himself, yes, and we could spend all day making what we like of that line, he came back to himself, but, but he did come back. He came back also to who he was, son to his father. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my father. That's so important that he still calls him and still knows him as my father. It's on the same basis that you give yourself to your father, your heavenly father, in repentance. Now look at yourself. I know you do. You look at yourself sometimes and and you grieve over the fact that you have placed yourself so far from him by your sin. That's exactly what he did, right? He put himself far away from his, his father by his sin. You can... You can smell the stench of the pig manure on yourself, can't you? And you think I am I am miserable. I am useless. I am a pathetic excuse for a Christian. Maybe you've fallen into some terrible sin. Maybe you're there right now. Or you've been, as we Christians tend to do sometimes, you've been comparing yourself, haven't you, with that other sister in the church, that brother in the church, You've been comparing yourself and finding that they've gone, it seems to you, so much further in the Christian life. What is wrong with me? You say. Or you've come under deep conviction about just how wicked your thoughts quickly become, and you know of what I speak. Can I be a Christian at all? You ask yourself. But listen. Stop listening to yourself and listen to God. Listen to God telling you who you are. He says, I have made you a new creature. You are a new creation in Christ, God says to you. You have been crucified with my son on the cross. And now it is no longer you who live, it is my son who lives in you. You... Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is who you are. You have been born again. You are the light of the Lord. That, dear Christian, is who you are. That is who you are. And don't you forget it. Now, knowing who you are, offer yourself to God. That's always the Bible's point. Not pretending to be something you're not, but as the person you truly are, his child and precious to him. A saint, as Paul impressed on us over and over again in our time in Corinthians together. You are a saint. That is who you are. You are a saint. His child and precious to him. That brings me to the third point. Third, you must repent by turning to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. Now, what do you know of your God? Well, thankfully, you know more, apparently, than this boy knew of his father. He anticipated, the boy did, that perhaps if he went back to his father, his father might see clear to treat him, you know, as a servant. Maybe let him... Let him have a bunk in the uh, servants' quarters. But at least he'd have servants' food. As he walks along the way, his bare, bruised and ever more bruised and bloody feet on his way back home, he's rehearsing his speech over and over again in his mind, maybe even out loud, hoping to perfect it, to curry his father's favor enough at least to throw him a servant's crust a bare existence but the more he rehearses my imagination takes over the more hopeless it seems his head begins to hang down as he approaches the familiar territory of his hometown and his steps begin to slow and his his even pathetic hope begins to wane But before he has even come near to the place, while he's still far, he's just a a tiny silhouette in the distance. Something happens. Something so unanticipated. Something so unconventional, so surprising as to blow the minds of everyone who sees it. But especially this son's own the Father comes running to him. He was surrendering all of his dignity, laying down his own life, subjecting himself to the, to the ridicule of everyone around against all convention of virtually any culture, but particularly of this Eastern culture. The Father comes running to the Son. Not because the Son's repentance is so perfect. It isn't. Not because the Son has earned the Father's favor. He hasn't. Not because He anticipated that the Son would bring something worthy to the table. He didn't even let the kid finish his speech for crying out loud. He runs to the son. He throws his arms around him. He kisses him. He orders the best robe and the ring for his hand and the shoes for his feet because and only because of the overflowing, raging, indomitable love of the father for his son. The prodigal of the parable it turns out, it's not the son. It's the father. The one who is really extravagant and lavish and reckless in the imparting of his resources is the father to the repentant son. Until that moment, the son had not really known the father, Eddie, he didn't know his father. Not very well, apparently, but now having repented, having found out about the love of the Father for him, the delightful, wonderful love that was actually ready and waiting all that time, watching, watching the horizon, longing to receive him back all the while. Now he knows that love. Now he knows his Father. And here's Jesus' point to you, dear ones. The point of the whole parable. Behold what manner of love the Father has for us. His children. Yes, you have placed yourself far from Him. You have. You've you've placed yourself in a far country by your sin. You've soiled yourself again with the manure of the world. You have plunged yourself in the Poverty with your sin, but only turn back to Him, and you will find a God not stern faced with arms crossed, tapping an impatient toe with a reluctant offer of probation, but one ready and happy and excited to receive you back again with a kiss on your head and an embrace around your back. The best robe, the ring for your finger, shoes for your bruised feet. From your foray with sin, again, he places on you. Rather than Throwing you some servant scraps, a feast he throws for you when you repent. and But turn to him. But you know this, don't you? You know this. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've done this time and time and time again. He has done this for you and he will continue to do it, I tell you. Listen to me and believe it as the Lord's own word. Every time you repent and turn to him, he does this again and receives you back with joy and with the joy and the extravagance and the rejoicing of the holy angels in heaven who repent over even one sinner. So do so. Do so again. Maybe do so for the very first time. Turn from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. Amen.